It's Monday night at 10 o'clock, and it's a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes politics and comics. This is the show for folks who wish it was just Lex Luthor running for the Republican uh, nomination for president. I think we would actually be way better off, let's face it. Uh, there's a <laughs> truth, right? Yeah, yeah, no, on the, on the Venture Brothers, people were joking um, that who assigned Donald Trump to Arch America? Can we get him replaced? That's like a whole – That's you can get your arch villain replaced in the Venture Brothers world anyway. So – well, uh, I'm Brett, one of the co-hosts for the show, and joining me is Alana. How you doing? I'm great. Uh, I have so, so I'm many up- opinions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just on Donald Trump. Oh, wait. No, we're actually going to actually talk about geeky stuff. Uh, yeah. So this episode, we're, uh, we've got a couple of topics, or at least two that we're going to hit. Uh, we're going to discuss Daredevil Season 2, which debuted on Netflix this past Friday. Just kind of give us our big overall picture of what we kind of think of the show. And then from there, um, speaking of legacy characters, we're going to discuss, um, well, just legacy comic book characters and uh, what they mean for uh, the future of the comic market and uh, publishers focusing on them. Uh, so first up, Daredevil. Um, you have watched uh, what, four or five episodes so far. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those who don't know, uh, Daredevil's back uh, on Netflix, debuted on Friday. Um, it is the second season of the show, um, so I will say it's the third Marvel Netflix combo overall. Uh, last was Jessica Jones. Uh, it not only has the return of Karen Page, Daredevil, a Matt Murdock or Matt Beck, a.k.a. Daredevil, and Foggy Nelson, uh, but it also introduced some new familiar characters uh, from Marvel Comics. Um, John Berthal, who plays Punisher, and I'm blanking on her name, Lute, something. Um, Elodie, Elodie, yeah. Yo, I believe, who's playing Elektra. Uh, yeah, and she plays uh, Elektra. Um, so overall, like, what do you think of the show? So, you know, I, I, I couldn't not watch this. Um, I, my feelings about Daredevil season one are very divided. There's a lot of things I think the show does very well. And the show is also wildly problematic. Um, and I'm expecting that'll be the case here as well. I definitely consider myself entertained and I feel like there's a lot that I can say about it. Um, you know, as somebody living in New York and who's lived in New York for a while uh, and who did political organizing, in fact, in Hell's Kitchen, like I have a certain amount of attachment to the, the place where this is taking place and to the source material. But um, I mean, obviously it's an incredibly well-made show. Uh, I just think that there are, it, it, for them to be doing a show that asks a lot of questions about brutality and uh, killing criminals um, in 2016 is, you know, this is like an evergreen topic, but I haven't seen any, and again, I've only seen the first four episodes, any references to any of the popular uprising against police brutality uh, or any specific racialized critique of what's happened in the show, which is consistent with the fact that I think the show is generally speaking ignored race as a framework for talking about any of the problems in society. But the show has class politics. So it's interesting. Like, I think that the show is probably more comfortable talking about those than it is talking about racial politics. And I suspect that there aren't a lot of black people who are writing anything or producing anything on the show. And that might have something to do with it. Um, yeah. 
What do you think? <laughs> you, you'll be disappointed because none of those things are discussed, uh, discussed in the season. Um, Damn it. So, so I think the first four episodes, yeah, basically the first four episodes are absolutely amazing. Um, or not really amazing. Fantastic. They're really, really good. Uh, I wish the season just ended at that point. Uh, once Electro kind of comes into the picture, uh, shit just goes downhill from there. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't. I, I just think she's horrible. Um, they wrote her badly. Um, the acting is so so. The plot line makes no sense. Wow, uh, that's a shame. What a shame. Yeah. Where I mean, it, it, it's. I mean, the first we've had we had discussions about the first season. The first season, there's a lot to discuss. About oh, mentality yeah. and and gentrification and mm-hmm. class, like all that stuff. And the second season, while well describe what I I feel is a comic book on screen, it really gets rid of all that stuff. Like the more I think the more interesting aspects and focuses on comic book stuff. So a very over the top plot. Um, you know where Electra is. A certain ninjas show up. Like not, I'm not spoiling anything. I mean, it's Electra, yeah. of course. Certain, of course, there's know, ninjas. It's there. There's of ninjas. There's ninjas. <laughs> uh, so it's stuff like that. Like it just gets off of that. It, uh, it, the funniest is my review. I went through and reviewed everything, uh, watched the entire season. Um, my big thing is while the series tried to go bigger, so more worldly at times, I actually think. It fails in that the series is much better focused in Hell's Kitchen. Like they try oh, to, oh god, do, yeah, it's yeah. it's interesting in that. Like, um, you, know, I feel like they try to take it out of Hell's Kitchen at times, and you'll see it kind of like mid season, and then it brought it kind of back more towards Hell's Kitchen towards the end of the season. And every time it was more focused, it mm. does a better job, which I think is really really interesting. I'm sure I'll agree with you. I, I because I felt like the the, the 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 specificity of place was incredibly central to the show being interesting at all in the first place. Yeah. So, yeah, that sounds like horribly misguided to try to expand yeah, it in that way. I will say that John Bern, uh, Bernthal um, as the Punisher. I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing his last names uh, correctly. Bernthal, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, he. Yeah, he's uh, good. Bernthal. He's really, really. He steals the show. Uh, I think he – it's interesting that, like, D'Onofrio in the first season, he's the one that really, really brings it. And he was Shane in The Walking Dead, and I think he was really great at Shane. But he nails it as Frank Castle. And I have to actually give the writers a lot of credit. I think they actually do a good job uh, on Frank Castle. Like, a lot of the, the concerns we had with the character, um, they address. And I, it, overall, I think they do a decent job, and they actually update it in many ways that we suggested. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, it, it, I thought it was it's it fascinating. We said that I I think the, overall the series would have been better if it just jettisoned Elektra, focused on Punisher, and just did that and nothing else. But if they, but and, and I'm, I'm not sure that's true. Yes, but if they don't address like Black Lives Matter this year, then it's just like you are living in fantasy land. But that's just which I guess we are. It's a superhero world. But Marvel has always prided prided itself on being the superhero world that lives right outside your door. And oh, absolutely. Yeah. If there's no Black Lives Matter, then they're not right outside my door. So, but yeah, we'll definitely well, I, have an episode. Doc, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, and I think that would have been the better thing is that if by focusing it just on Punisher. You could have actually had that discussion about police brutality and uh, justice through violence 
and um, maybe more about race a little bit. Uh, you definitely could have done that. Instead, it gets very fantastical in a bad way. Mm. Well, I know we'll have we should definitely have an episode of the podcast where we talk about yeah. like with those spoilers, you know, and all that. Let's maybe have uh, Scott Eric Kaufman back again because he was so good last time. But yeah. Um, we'll do that and we'll have spoilers in the future. And this is just our short thoughts for our listeners about the show. Yeah, I so definitely far. want, I definitely want to hear Scott's opinion. Um, I know, you know, seeing some of his praise, he, he loves certain shots and visually I think the series is just as solid. It's interesting. And I kind of, I want to throw it to him and I'm putting it out there just so I'm reminded to say it is I feel that the, the first season, I don't know if you'll agree with me. It felt much more compact, like uh, the hallway scene, I think, epitomized a lot of the visuals in that mm-hmm. there wasn't tons of space for everything. Like, even most of the scenes with Matt and, or, Matt and or Matt as Daredevil were in very tight spaces, whereas uh, Kingpin, it was in very open spaces. It was something mm-hmm. I kind of picked up. This season, there's a lot of open spaces. Like, even in the fight scenes, it's like we're in, like, a sewer but for some reason, this underground sewer has tons of space, bigger than my apartment. Um, and, like, I'm only going to fight three guys. It's just, like, there's a lot of visual space, and it doesn't quite feel as um, uh, claustrophobic as the first season did. And I really want to talk to – I want to talk to Scott and see if he noticed that or if he's got opinions on it. Um, it's it's an interesting shift, and I I have to imagine it was done on purpose, but – you know, who knows? Uh, but yes, we'll we'll be discussing that for a future future uh, episode. Um, yeah. But the big topic here. Uh, so last week we were talking about DC Comics Rebirth and uh, DC's plan on rebooting, relaunching, rebirthing their comic lines on a lot of the characters. Still kind of up there exactly what the hell is going on. Uh, but the, last week we had kind of a fantasy draft of who we want to see on various series. This coming Saturday at WonderCon DC, we'll be making some announcements for at least some of the creative teams, if not all the creative teams. Uh, I believe it's going to be live-streamed. If it's going to be live-streamed, I'll do everything I can to... Uh, posted on our site so you can watch it. Uh, but we didn't get a chance to really discuss the kind of the crux of DC Rebirth. Um, it, Jeff Johns, who's kind of the big giant architect at uh, DC Comics, has described that it is in vain of classic stories of Green Lantern Rebirth and the Flash Rebirth. Uh, it's been quite a while since I watched or read either of those stories, but mm-hmm. uh, the the general thought in my my um you know, remembrance of them and kind of how they were taken is uh, they reworked a lot of the classic elements of the characters, bringing them back into the characters and kind of refocusing them with more of a classic take, uh, classic background, classic history, classic origin, uh, jettisoning a lot of the changes that were made over the years. Um, now, what, but weren't, same, weren't these also the stories where they like literally replaced the Bronze Age versions of the characters with the Silver Age versions of the characters? Yeah, there was some of that too. Uh, I mean, it did a like, lot. Like I guess, by which I mean, like I'm 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 trying to be more conscious about making stuff clearer for people who are less um, obsessive in their knowledge. But basically, like you know, the Silver Age Flash is Barry Allen, and the Bronze Age Flash was his former sidekick Wally West. 
And then this is the moment where they said, no, Barry Allen's not dead. He's the Flash again. Or with like Green Lantern, you know, Green Lantern became um, by that point Kyle Rayner. And instead they're like, no, we're bringing back Hal Jordan now. Like, isn't that what those stories did? Yeah, yeah, that was some of it. So Green Lantern, the storyline was Hal Jordan was the Green Lantern up into the early 90s, if I remember. Um, Mm Yeah. And then he went completely batshit insane, became Parallax, killed all the Green Lanterns. Kyle Rayner took over. Um, John Stewart was in there. Guy Gardner was still around. And then uh, Rebirth came around. The Green Lantern Corps came around, uh, came back. Um, uh, they and they kind of put Kyle Rayner and John Stewart to the side and put Hal Jordan more in the spotlight. Um, mm-hmm. The Flash also put Barry Allen back in the spotlight, spotlight Wally West into kind of to the side. It didn't totally get rid of those characters. It just made them not quite as the you know the main Green Lantern. Um, now, what's interesting is with all these other characters, they haven't really done replacements. They're they're all pretty the classic characters. So you know, mm-hmm. Clark Kent is still Superman. Bruce Wayne is still well, he will be Batman. Um, you know, <laughs> Cyborg is the same. Uh, like they, there's none of those switches that I can think of. Uh, but the big thing that Jeff Johns was talking about in his video introducing Batgirl, week, like, Batgirl, Batgirl, Batgirl would be another example where they said, "Oh, we're going to bring it back to the Silver Age version of this character. Have it be Barbara Gordon, as opposed to having it be, you know, the Batgirl who it's been now, which would either be Cassandra Ka- Cassandra Kane or Stephanie Brown." Yeah, but, but but Barbara still is Batgirl in Batgirl. Right, but that's again, this is still part of like this is all part of DC trying to bring things back to the way they were in the seventies. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the thing that's uh, to me is strange with the rebirth is and rebirth with Green Lantern and, and the Flash. The way I always you know took it as was it was kind of uh, putting these uh, classic versions of the characters back up front and. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't want to say pushing the replacements to the side, but, you know, basically pushing the replacements to the side. But all these characters like Batgirl, all the, um, you know, Huntress, well, Huntress is kind of up in the air, isn't she now? Um, and a couple others, they, they are yeah. the classic versions. So there's no one really to push to the side. Like, Batgirl is Barbara Gordon in her series. Um, so it doesn't quite do that. But the thing I think that's interesting is... Jeff Johns kept on using the word legacy over and over and over again. And Mm -hmm. legacy to me is dog whistle politics to Mm -hmm. uh, sell it to classic readers and classic DC fans. Yeah, I agree that legacy is essentially comics version of a dog whistle politics. Um, I mean, when you think about the talent team who's supposed to be reestablishing the new DC universe, every single one of them is somebody who the old guard of comics, the old white men of comics are going to approve of. And like the one person who brings diversity to it, who is somebody who's awesome and whose participation in it is one of the only reasons I'm even like, you know, giving it much of a a shot, which is Phil Jimenez. Phil Jimenez has been around DC for a long time. He just wants the same things that I want, you know, (laughs) which is like more diversity and like women who are awesome and things like that. But um, so like even the one person who's in there, who's like, speak to the new readers is also someone who's been around for a long time. Um, so, you know, when you look at who that leadership team is, they're not like Steve Orlando isn't on it. You know, Marguerite Bennett isn't in the leadership team. Like she might be coming to like write, you know, a book for them, but she's not reshaping the world. 
um, the the people who are the main architects are the same old white men who have been driving shit into the ground for years. And what worries me is like what the comics were doing in the eighties when they, they developed these modern versions of these characters that were often like grown up versions of the sidekicks and things like that. Um, they were trying to make them relevant. Like, you know, every decade they keep trying to come up with the new Spider-Man on Marvel's side. And this is the one decade where it really stuck, right? Because Kamala Khan is the new Spider-Man. And we have from the last decade, it worked too, because Miles Morales is, is also the new Spider-Man. But, um, you know, we had these characters. So we get one per decade is what you're saying. Yes, you get one new <laughs> Spider-Man per decade. Um, and uh, I think that, like, I think that right now, you know, a lot, because of people who are decision makers, they came of age during a time when Hal Jordan was the Green Lantern and Barry Allen was the Flash. And that's why to them, Hal Jordan is the Green Lantern and Barry Allen is the Flash. Even though pretty much everybody who doesn't have a deep personal, like, attachment to the origins, like, have to recognize that actually when it comes to character concept, I mean... Wally West is a more interesting Flash when it comes to, I personally don't, and when it comes to like, oh, who could do something really interesting with the Green Lantern power set, uh, Kyle Reiner would be more interesting because he's an artist. Like, they haven't, I haven't seen that before. I'm not, I've never read a Kyle Reiner, like a Green Lantern comic in my life, actually. So, but I, I, but I get why, like, oh, that is more interesting. And then on a marketing level, their whole point is that for a whole generation of readers, we grew up in the cartoons, and in the cartoons, John Stewart is Green Lantern, and Wally West is the Flash. Um, and these are characters who, you know, who a younger audience are expected to be. I feel less strongly about this in the case of the Flash because both versions of the Flash are white dudes. But in the case of Green Lantern, there is no reason why the primary focus of your Green Lantern cachet should be in. Hal Jordan. I mean, Bruce Wayne is Batman because that exists on a primordial level within the pop culture of the world. Because if I stop someone on the street and I say, who is Bruce Wayne? They know that that's Batman. But if you stop someone on the street and ask them, who's Hal Jordan? They're going to look at you. I don't know. Who's Hal Jordan? So if you're trying to like expand the comics readership, you can either keep going back to the past and have it be Hal Jordan as Green Lantern, who is yet another white guy, just like the other white guys, who doesn't even have a brand that the public recognizes. Or you can say, if I go up to someone on the street and I ask them, who's Hal Jordan? They say, I don't know. I can go up to them and say, hey, who's Green Lantern? And they say, I don't know. And I say, hey, Green Lantern is like a major black superhero. People would be like, oh, that's fucking cool. At least where I live, you know. Um, and if it's people of a certain age, they'll say, oh, yeah, Green Lantern, he's that black guy from the cartoon. So they're really losing an opportunity if they keep trying to drag things back to the same exact status quo that they had in the seventies. And the reason why I really wanted us to have this conversation on the podcast is I understand why people want to have the legacy versions of their characters. Like I'm attached to the versions of things that I grew up with too. But what I have to remind myself is just because something is not being written in the current version doesn't mean that stuff that I read and loved isn't still there. And it doesn't mean that there aren't reams of it that I haven't even read yet. Like the archives of comics are so vast, you know, Marvel unlimited, for example, like really, you know, DC doesn't have anything like it and DC needs to, but you know, any day that I really miss Barbara Gordon as Batgirl, 
and Barbara Green is Batgirl again, but I use this as an example, I can go back and read all these old issues of Batgirl. I don't need Batgirl to be a white woman. Batgirl can be Cassandra Cain, who's an Asian woman. Like, doesn't mean the past stories are invalid. It doesn't make them go away. They're still there and they're still available for us to read. But what we're doing when we keep falling back on the same exact white versions of characters is we're writing ourselves out of relevancy to the public. Yeah, I mean, so my take on it is you, you kind of have to do a little bit of both. You, you need to, uh, you, you should be having, you know, so there's some problems with, with comics in general, right? That you've got a bunch of characters who never age. You know, Bruce Wayne never really ages. Uh, Clark Kent doesn't really age. Spider-Man doesn't really age. Well, I mean, he's a little bit older now. But yeah, generally, Spider-Man aged, but he's like in slow motion. Yeah, I mean, they, they age in slow motion. Um, you know, it's it's not normal stuff. So you, you have this vanguard, right? Like you you need to find a natural way or a smart way to bring in this next generation, this new generation of characters mm-hmm. that makes sense. Like Kyle Rayner was, there was, you know, I remember when it switched over, there was nothing that quite... Uh, it, it was nothing that quite blew me away about him. I remember him coming in and being really unimpressed with it. Um, I grew up reading Hal Jordan. It's fun. So you know, the Green Lantern example you always give, I think, is really fascinating. I didn't watch the Justice Justice League cartoons. So just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was. It was just like you had no television. Did you have no television? So I have to go find your parents and yell at them. Uh, no, I was probably glued to the television. Um, I probably just wasn't, I don't know, I just wasn't watching it at that point. I don't know if I was in high school at that point. When, when was the Justice League cartoon? Uh, we were, like, not in high school. I don't think. I think we were in college, I think. I was no, we were in high school. No, we were old. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, it happened sometime in the past. <laughs> so, anime was 2001, so... Okay, um, I was a I was, I was drinking at that point, so probably blacked out during most of it. Um okay. <laughs> we'll go with that. Yeah. So I, yeah. you know, John, John Stewart is is uh, Green Lantern. Interesting is like it just is nothing for me. It's I didn't watch Justice League, which is where I really kind of associate as how most people would know him. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up reading Hal Jordan, so when you talk about like to me, Green Lantern's Hal Jordan, um, and somewhat Kyle Rayner. I had to actually go and figure out who the hell John Stewart was, other than the comedian, when I started reading DC Comics again because I kind of just missed him at some hmm. point. Um, so it's, it's like, to me, it, there's got to be some balance. And and the thing that, that DC, I thought, used to do really good was have the characters age. Like, there was something about the characters where they would kind of get to a point and, and new characters would come in and new versions would come in and maybe the old version would go off and do something else um, or mm-hmm. take on maybe persona or maybe be the mentor like dc used to be good about that hmm. um you know superman got older got married had a kid like these things happened um and then at some point dc was like nah fuck it we can't do that you know we we got to keep things uh you know stuck to the way they are um it's funny john stewart was de- uh, debuted in 1971 i just never read a john stewart comic I had to go look that up. I'm like, I really wonder when John Stewart came around. Just never read John Stewart. I was always a Hal Jordan person. Um, 
but you know, it, it, DC used to be really good about that, and then at some point they just decided no, like we're not going to do that. And I don't know when they decided to do that. And it's really bizarre because I think that was one of their strengths that they were able to actually have a universe where we could relate to some of the characters they're going through. Yeah, I mean, I I guess to me it's almost like I don't care which the one that I grew up with because it's not about me, you know? Like, if I'm, you know, I, I'm somebody who's been through comics through ages of it being... Uh, completely like people like me being completely invisible in comics. I, you know, I read years of comics where like I was completely invisible in comics and I read them anyway. Um, I read, I read years of comics where I thought the art was heinous and I read them anyway. I, I'm not like, I'm stuck and I'm in it, you know, and I'm not worried about me. I'm worried about how are we going to have young people like, you know, and, and bring in a new audience to comics so that like this shit keeps getting made so that I can keep reading it. And, um, I, you know, I, I guess the example I would give would be like with Blue Beetle. Right. And I, I think we've been on the same page with this. We've mentioned this before, but like, yeah. I'm a fan of Ted Cord. He's the silver age and bronze age really. Well, he's really the bronze age Blue Beetle character more than anything. He's entertaining. I've always enjoyed his hype with Bruce Gold and the old JLI, but in the year 2016, in the year, 1990-something, frankly, too. Blue Beetle needs to be Jaime Reyes, who's like a teenage Latino boy in the Southwest, you know, because that's, yep. that's who he created then. That's who it needs to be. You know, DC doesn't have characters like that. He, he could be DC's Spider-Man, you know. He could really be DC's Miles Morales in those ways. And it doesn't mean you have to kill Ted Cord. I mean, I think Ted Cord is dead right now. It doesn't mean you have to kill him. He can be his mentor, I really like that mentor thing you were bringing up, um, you know, and, and ultimately if for some reason they decide that Ted court has to be dead, I can go back and read JLI that those stories still exist. I don't think I've read every single issue of every single comic that he's ever been written in. Um, you know, but if I want comics to be relevant and in America and like, we don't have Latino superheroes in any significant quantity, then maybe we need to recognize that we need Jaime Reyes whether or not we like Ted Cord. <laughs> I, I don't know how to boo the fan. I don't care. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I think it really... Can you hear me? Hello? Am I good? No. No, I don't hear you, Brett. Okay. There, yeah. I heard that. There okay. we go. Maybe okay. there's something up with my mic. Uh, I was okay. I was gonna say uh, the funny thing to me is like I Blue Beetle like as an example I never read a Blue Beetle comic so I I not one that affects me. Um, Blue Beetle com I mean there were there were high Reyes Blue Beetle comics but most people know Blue Beetle because yeah. because they read JLI if they know Ted yeah, yeah, they read yeah. Justice League yeah and I would never read JLI and all that so it's just like it, to me it's a I don't know the characters whatever well in the end it really comes down to good writing right like you could go and put uh-huh. Jaime Reyes you could do John Stewart if the story sucks the story sucks like it's it, yeah no matter who you put in it doesn't matter um, yeah. So, you know, story first, I think, even before the characters. Like, if you don't have a good mm-hmm. story, what the hell's the point? No one will uh, read it, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's kind of what has happened with some of these. It's interesting is that, you know, some of these companies, Marvel and DC, have done some really interesting things with characters and have done 
um, you know, uh, what they think the audience wants. And it just hasn't worked. Like, I read it and was like, this is, it's okay. Like, this isn't anything special. Um, and sure enough, things went bye-bye. Um, and of course, I, I'm sure the last, or the, the wrong uh, answers were, or the, long, the wrong lessons were learned from the situations. Uh, I mean, it, in the end, it, it's all about, you know, the stories to begin with. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see, going back to the Green Lantern example, what they do, because they've got two titles. They've got Green Lanterns, and then Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps, I think it is, is the other one, um, which tells me that there's going to be one with Hal Jordan and probably rebuilding the Green Lantern Corps, and then there's going to be another one with who knows. And the who knows might be Jon Stewart, could be Kyle Rayner, could be um, Powering, and I can't think of her name, from Earth 3. Um, who, like, Powering? Yeah, I don't know. I don't yeah, know about Earth 3. I can't think That's of the name. Evil yeah, the most the evil, evil of the earth. Um, it could be any of those. So it, it, it uh, you know, in the end, hopefully we'll find out more Saturday so we can actually have a, uh, uh, more specifics to talk about on that and, and have a better idea. But in the end, like, you need to know, you know, you need decent writing, you need decent plots. Um, but what's strange, you know, what's strange is... Marvel and DC are doing this in many ways. Like, they really are, at times, giving that next generation of characters. And the purchasers aren't responding. Like, the... And the only thing I can think of... Before you respond. The only thing I can think of is it's because the people showing up to shops to purchase are the same damn people who care about legacy characters Mm -hmm. who aren't willing to try these new things. And, um, you know, the publishers haven't quite figured out how to market these comics to the new readers um, or potentially the the comic readers who aren't going into comic shops um, properly to make sure that they are purchasing every single issue. Um, you know, a great example is Kyle Rayner, who's mentioned that took over for Green Lantern, is a Hispanic guy. I actually didn't know that. And then it was pointed out, it was like, no, put all the, the dots together. I was like, oh, holy shit. Yeah, he totally is. And he's in uh, Omega Man, which is Tom King writing an amazing series. But the mm-hmm. sales are horrible. Like, it, it, it had its 12-issue series cut to six, and then it's backed up to 12 because people got pissed. Because mm-hmm. um, the critics loved it and the art was good, but I, I mean that one yeah. is, that was a very intellectual comic that was oh, never yeah. going to be popular among a lot of people. Like that was a right. niche comic, so right, they right. can't expect that that's going to be like a blockbuster, you know, kind Cyborg. of thing. Cyborg, Cyborg, Cyborg is a better example. Cyborg was something which is supposed to be like accessible to everybody, not hyper artsy or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Or Midnighter, which I would say is probably you know supposed to be success uh, success accessible and the Marvel side you've got Moon Girl, you've got I think Patsy Walker isn't like burning up the charts. Um I mean there's a long list of, of those like middle tier comics that aren't like really blowing through the water or you know, anything special. But you know, Ms. Marvel's still selling decent. I think Captain Marvel's taking a dip. Like there there's a lot of there is a lot of interesting stuff out there and the people just don't seem to be responding the way the publishers think they that they would have responded. But and that's because of your point, which is that they haven't been told it exists. Well, that would be my guess, yeah. But here's, I here's mean, like, a, you know, yeah. should publishers be changing what their expectations are then? 
Well, they shouldn't expect new audiences to find their work if they don't give people a way to find their work. So yeah, I think that's pretty clear. And it's a consistent problem. Like they do not try marketing things in ways that will, anybody new will recognize them. Um, I have like, they, they leave it to fans to have to evangelize everything to other fans. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, the biggest issues out there. I think that was the other thing we were going to discuss on this show about how to properly market these people. Um, we mentioned that last week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, that's like the biggest thing is if they're not going to market these new series to people who would care, then you might as well no, just market. No people. There's no point. You might as well just do the legacy thing because that's the only people who are showing up the comic shops. And and when you're doing that, you're dooming the industry. Like the comparison yeah. that I'd like to try to draw is between like clean energy and um, fossil fuels. So. You know, whenever like conservative people, because they are corrupt uh, in government to say that they want to just keep using fossil fuels and not do anything about green energy, it's because, well, we don't know what may happen to green energy, but we have fossil fuels here. And right now, that's what we should stick to. They're going to run out. And also the sea levels are going to rise and people will die. So you can keep doing the same thing you've always done and you will make money right now. And then there's a short road to the death of everyone. Or you could try something new and know that it will pay off later and not immediately, and we won't all die. Like, it really is the same in my view. So, so there was a um, – God, I need to pull this up. So there was a, a discussion of uh, um, that I had with a guy who – I'm going to do air quotes. You can't see it on the – you know, in the radio show that, you know, is supposed to be one of these experts on um, comics and sales and it's a person I, that a lot of people listen to that I generally think is full of shit in what he talks about. Um, and we were talking about um, the comics and the and uh, DC cutting their series their prices from three ninety nine to two ninety nine. That's part of Rebirth as well. Um, mm. And the question that was thrown out was, you know, is this you know how? What's the big picture of this? Is the single issue price too high? You know how would else can you bring uh, cost of production down? Like, what are your general thoughts on this? So this is what I said. I said, you know, the, the issue isn't necessarily the price. The issue because there's actually Comicsology did some fascinating tests, and I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about them, so I'm not going to give the specifics. But they did tests between $3.99, $2.99, and $9.99, cents, and it's, the results aren't what you think they would be. It was actually really fascinating stuff. Um, and I don't know if I can or can't talk about it, but we'll just leave it at that. So $3.99 or $2.99 is on the price. First thing I said, you know, the, the issue isn't necessarily the price. It's the fact that the industry is still focused on a broken distribution system. They uh-huh. need to embrace digital technology. Uh, which could be cheaper you, since you're cutting out uh, the production, you're cutting out distribution, um, you know, in theory distribution, uh, you're cutting out the physical product, you're cutting out transportation costs. Uh, you can actually maybe make arguments it's more eco-friendly, though I don't know if it actually is. Um, there's some different costs because you have to do like met- metadata and some other stuff uh, for digital. But in generally, in, in, you know, without seeing it, it should be cheaper. Um, and then a person responded said, can that be done without destroying the comic book store? To which my response is, who gives a shit about the comic book store? You know, when Apple came out with 
iTunes and digital music, um, you know, the the single sales skyrocketed. In theory, the industry did better from everything I read back at the time. It's now kind of that big question mark. Um, bad record stores went out of business. Good record stores stayed on. Um, and I question why are we beholden to the direct market and this broken distribution system that actually shackles the industry because everyone's afraid of pissing off the direct market. Uh, to uh-huh. which the response of this expert was that we shouldn't put all our eggs in the basket for Amazon. I was like, but there's a whole bunch of other digital services. And if you can sh- you know, put your money towards digital services, then there will be a whole bunch of other competitors that will come up. Um, you know, Maybe you're able to drop the price a little bit. Um, that, you know, the the interesting, you know, everyone brings up that, you know, if Marvel and DC drop their digital price, the 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 direct market is going to get pissed off and they're going to stop covering, you know, uh, holding DC and Marvel Comics, which we know is not true, that the stores are going to sell whatever their their customers demand that they have. Customers are not going to stop demanding Marvel and DC. Um, we also know, and here's the one, and I threw it back in their face, was Image Comics, when they went and started selling day and date digital, they sell it for two ninety nine when a comic is three ninety nine on the stand. So they're actually selling their comics digitally cheaper on day and date. Their sales have increased since they started doing that. So the whole thing about prices dropping um, or digital competing with physical is just not true and a massive fallacy based off of outmoded thinking and a broken distribution system um, and generally, I would say, antiquated people that supposedly are thinkers in this industry. Right on, man. And I would say that a good comic book store is a community space. Like you read yep. about these community, these comic book stores that have reading clubs. Like I saw photos of like, a, you know, Shudder, which is like Saga. Like it's, you know, a popular indie comic, but it's not like everybody knows Saga. Nevertheless, this like comic book store has a Shutter reading club. That's so cool. You know, yep. like the good stores that are about building community and being inclusive are going to stay open and the shitty stores are going to close and like they were going to close eventually anyway. And the shitty stores are the pieces like, you know, that were like not really like the thing that I miss about I, I, I do miss my old record store when I lived in Williamsburg earwax records because I go there and there's this one woman who worked there who was like the only other woman I know who cares about prog rock. I did just meet somebody else, but regardless, and like she could make good recommendations to me and there really wasn't somebody else who I could have those conversations with in my other parts of my life. Um, but like, and in my comic book store, I go and I talk to people and I get references and like, that's really valuable to me. But I also know for a fact that like when I, you know, I pulled like my friends, for example, hey, because I knew a lot of my friends were interested in Black Panther because they're Tahanisi Coates fans. My friends are like all like lefty, you know, act- activists and stuff. So I said, hey, you guys know this book comic is coming out. How many people are going to read it? And how are you going to read it? Every single one of them was like, oh, I'll get the trade paper. Like they don't, they don't know what a trade paperback is. But they essentially mean like they don't want nobody wants to buy single issues. They don't want to go to a comic book store. They just want to buy a book. They want it to be a complete book. Or they said, oh, is there a way I can get it digitally? That sounds cool. Like they didn't know you could buy it digitally, but they liked the fact that when I told them it existed, they're like, oh, that sounds cool and easy. So like they didn't have problems with, you know, buying pixels. Like people buy songs on iTunes. People will buy pixels of comics. Um, But like, you know, that. Black Panther is a comic that's supposed to expand comics readership. It's a prestige title. It's the kind of thing you can tell, like, people that, like, they're reading. Um, 
and uh, stuff like that. And people will be like, oh, that's an important comic. But those, but nobody's going to go to a comic book store who isn't already a comic book store visitor to go there and pick it up. You know, it's not, people don't like go and buy floppies. There's such a hassle. It's an inconvenience. I live in the city, so it's all a lot easier for me. But if I lived in the suburbs and I had to like get in a car and drive to go to a comic store, I mean, when would you even do that? When would you, when would you even do that? Yeah. And and can that's just the thing is, you know, the the strength on digital and the other thing, and I didn't even want to get in because at that point I think the person I was debating with knew that I had them um, just on a data <laughs> aspect of the image. I think basically it was like, yeah, oh, really? You're arguing this stuff? Well, image did this and their sales increased. So, again, what what's your point? Um, the the thing that – I don't even remember what I was about to say. Um, the The – Thing that's that, oh yeah so the other thing that I think that's that's great about digital and marketing is that data aspect right like we you know we work in politics mm-hmm. we deal with data all the time uh, people for those who don't understand or who knew who are new to this this is basically how the comic industry works the publisher grates the comic they actually generally don't sell to individuals yeah there's some subscription services yeah they some of them actually control their own digital stuff but for the most part they don't sell the individuals they do is sell it uh they they work on a three months lead time they market their comics to um to the stores and there's some magazines and supposedly the comic fans look at these magazines and notifications and all this and get excited and tell the stores what they want really that's you know that's the ideal situation it's not the real situation not many people do that so the stores order stuff three three months ahead of time um, because the publishers have kind of pitched everything to the stores. Maybe they gave them incentives. Maybe there's some deals here and there. So the stores order the comics, and then the stores have to do the job of selling it to the individual. Um, at the point when the first issue has hit, generally the second or third issue has already been ordered. So the store has made guesses as to how the comic's going to do and how people are going to react. Uh, maybe their guesses are wrong. Maybe their guesses are right. Generally, uh, the only thing that the publishers will see is how much they have sold to stores. They don't know what the sell-through rate is. So uh, here's a great example. Archie Comics did, I think, like um, 100,000 or 150,000 first issue. There was 50, 60 different covers. Stores would have op- you know, possibly ordered 10, 20, 30 copies of each of the different variants hoping to sell it to collectors. Uh, this is part of what caused the 90s collapse in, collapse in the industry because people were speculating and, and thinking these will actually get valuable. Uh, so there was this huge inflation of the first issue. Second issue comes out. Second issue sales were like actually like 56,000. Now go to most of your comic book stores right now. Go and see how many issues of, of Archie number one they have sitting on the shelves. I will put money that a good chunk of the shops have shitloads of Archie number ones in their dollar bins right now uh, collecting dust and not selling. They were over-ordered. Um, the publisher won't have a clue as to what the reality of things are until that second or third issue when the stores, if they're lucky, might be able to adjust some of those orders, in which case things will start tanking. So a publisher doesn't really know how a comic's doing until like the third or fourth issue, at which point they have to figure out what the hell's going on. On top of that, the store has generally sold to an individual that comes in. They have no idea who this individual is. A lot of them pay for cash. Some of them pay credit cards. The store isn't really doing a very good job as tracking who's purchasing what. 
um, getting whatever information they can. So they're basically selling it blindly to uh, their customers. So to summarize, publisher is selling it to distribution, distribution is selling it to the store, the sell, sell, store is selling it to the customer, generally has no freaking clue who's buying it, and has to guess as to who's going to want what, and there's no feedback loop back to the publisher. It's a broken system. Digital, publishers are selling it directly to the individuals. You're giving up an email address to do it. Generally, you can actually match that email address to a whole bunch of data, usually like 200 different data points uh, on an individual, anything from their age, gender, to their income. Do they own a home? Do they have kids? What their favorite magazine is? What type of television they watch? Tons of stuff. And the publisher can then make actual intelligent decisions as to who to, uh, who to try to market that second, third, fourth issue to. If they go and think that first issue of Black Panther, for example, would do a really great job of African-American uh, readers, but they go and they actually sell it and like, holy shit, Asian readers are buying the crap out of Black Panther – um, even though you know disproportionately they're they're purchasing this comic, well maybe we should start focusing on Asian readers instead. We're going to get a bigger bang for the buck. That's proper marketing, and that's uh -huh. what happens when you actually have the feedback loop and getting data back. Unfortunately, the system's completely freaking broken, and no matter how many times you bring this up to individuals, they stare at you with glass eyes because they don't get it or don't give a shit. That's what baffles me. I you know there's a lot of cases where the philosophy of capitalism is so embedded in people's minds that they don't act in ways that will actually make them more money because it goes counter to how they think things are supposed to work. Yep. This is such a weird example of it. Like I don't understand why they don't want to make money. Like I don't, I don't understand it. So this is my theory. My theory is that the publishers are making their money um, they're generally not. not – well, I mean they're making <laughs> what they think they're making money. Like it, generally it's profitable. None of them are, are – basically this is as good as they think they can get. They don't understand that they can do better. It's like – you know what I, the perfect example is? It is like political fundraising email. Everyone has all these like uh, um, thoughts as to how much they should be making, but because the fact that they all spam – they don't know their practices are dog shit, and if they actually did proper um, uh, nurturing and and uh, treating their, their list like customers, they would actually do way better in the long run. Um, so their actual target numbers are way lower than what they should be. Huh. And that, I can tell you the truth. I've, I, you know how much crap I get for political email and the data I see, and I know those numbers are off, and everyone's... Uh, got really bad expectations um, just to explain to folks who don't know like sorry. a lot of political <laughs> fundraising emails like when you're like how did i end up on this email list sometimes yeah. you ended up on this email list because you signed a petition and it wasn't clear to you that that petition was going to make you end up on this other email list and sometimes yeah. people just straight up took your email address and it's illegal yeah and they just swiped it or traded it or did whatever um because they can and no one ever calls on it um which all hurts they're like I mean, we're totally getting off the topic, but that it hurts their numbers and it hits the, hurts the results they're getting and they see these crap results and think, oh, this is the way it's supposed to work, not realizing if they didn't have these bad habits, things would actually be doing better in the long run. That's kind of the point that I was making. Um, yeah. the, the expectations are so low that they don't know they can do better because they don't know what, a good, what good results should look like. Hmm. Success, I think, is so foreign that they don't they don't even get 
what it should be like. Well, when we've explained social media marketing to comics publishers, to comics people, they've like been impressed and confused. So I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. I'm weird. I feel weird being in a position where I'm like, let me tell you how to sell things better. Like that's not my belief system, but you know, if I want to keep enjoying this branded entertainment that I was raised on, that I can't give <laughs> up, you know, I, I, and I also like, I want to have conversations about it with like a diverse population of people. Oh yeah. And I, you know, I want to be able to do that. That's why I care. Yeah. It's, to me, it, it's fascinating, right? Like the, the, um, the, the thought process, the, the logic that you use, like, it just blows my mind. I mean, the, you know, the the, the perfect example of just that that uh, you know, oh, if they lower prices or if they go day and date and lower prices, things will get hurt. And I'm like, no, Image is doing this, and the the and the stores didn't go completely apeshit crazy, and and Image is selling more than they did before. I mean, in general, the publishing and and digital market have increased. You know, at the same time, print comics is one of the few industries that have grown while digital has grown too. Um, generally, CD sales decreased when when uh, digital um, music was sold. Though finals coming back, which is kind of a completely fascinating thing to me. Print books for the most what part is? decreased. Vinyl. So what is uh, oh vinyl? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a it's an aesthetic item. It's yep, like buying a physical I mean. art. Yeah, you know? that's what I think a lot of it is. Uh, print books decreased while digital went up, but now print's coming back because um, I think people are just, again, going for kind of that nostalgia thing would be my guess. Um, mm-hmm. But comics is one of the few industries that saw the the digital take off and the print take off at the same time. Um, but still, people are still you know back in this you know, archaic thought process that, that freaking blows my mind where I, I, I don't know if they don't get it or they're just blind to reality or don't want to admit it or they have their little, little fiefdoms and don't want to, like, give it up because the, the reality maybe is... They're scared. I mean, maybe they're yeah. scared of, like, what happens to them if the comics audience doesn't look like them? Does that well, make them it, irrelevant? You know, does that intimidate them? I don't know. Well, so here's the other thing is, you know, we're seeing it in, in politics. The more that digital is embraced, the more it's shaking up the status quo and causing problems for the old guard. And comics are going to be, which should be in theory the same thing, is that more as digital co- digital comics increase for sales, it gives greater opportunity for small publishers and individual creators to break through and really shake shit up for the old guard. So I think part of it is is you know this old you know there, right now there's a huge you know debate of the DNC is is cooking the books for Clinton if, with the presidential race right and a lot of people say oh it's the old guard protecting her um, from from the uprising of all these young millennials behind Bernie. Um, and there's something to that, but you know, it's there's that same thing I think going on in, in comics today too, right? Like the the old guard doesn't want us to really embrace digital because that potentially fucks their shit up. 
that really brings an up, the ability for an upstart to come in and and completely throw them for a loop by either talking directly to fans, by putting out a produ- uh, product that's not seen anywhere else and making it super easy to get to it, bringing the price really lower. And some of the most successful comics last year completely shook up the the um, the the market. Uh, Brian K. Vaughn's Pay Whatever You Want for the couple series that he, he did, he broke down how much he made per comic, and the amount that he made per comic was ludicrous, like in a good way. Um, and that's a system that, you know, the big publishers don't want to see because it creates chaos, and it's probably you yeah. know, a lot of the creators don't want to see. And it also builds the brand of the creator. So if, yeah. uh, if somebody's doing pay what you want to Brian K. Vaughn, Brian K. Vaughn can do that because he is a huge name in comics. Um, you know, and there's tons of – and the, the DC and Marvel, they don't want fans to know who these writers are. They want to just keep it interchangeable yeah. so they can replace them and not pay people's rights and things like that. Well, because the other issue is that for for DC and Marvel, they care about the characters because they're actually not making the majority money off their comics. They're making money off of all the ancillary products that they're selling. Spider-Man's one of the top brands out there. He brings in roughly a billion dollars a year, um, and that's far and above everything everything else. That's the last stats I saw of that. Like Superman, Batman, the Avengers, X-Men were third of that. But we're talking billions of dollars a year in money off of all the stuff that's branded with them, and that's where they really make their money. Hmm. But if you were to go and do digital, it puts it more towards the creators, and any creator can come in with something good, and and it it really does put the money, the power into the creators. Yeah. Damn yeah. the man, save the empire. I think that's the lesson. Yay! <laughs> Damn the man, save. What's that from? That sounds familiar. Empire Records. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen that movie. There's, like, huge parts of 90s things that I attempted to avoid because they seemed so cliche at the time. As a result, I can have these gaps in my knowledge base. Um, where was I? Yeah, I think that this is all right on. I, You know, I I have to wonder why they don't want to save themselves. Yeah, I, I really don't know. It's We'll see how the, the Comic-Con uh, circuit is this year. If I'm on a panel, you better believe I'm going on this rant. Um, oh, good. God. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully, yeah. You had an awesome panel at Comic-Con last year. You know, I hope we get one approved for New York Comic-Con this year. Um, anyway. But, yeah, the stuff that we're talking about is stuff that's actually vital to saving the industry in my educated opinion as someone who deals with this shit in other sectors and as your educated opinion as somebody who's like studied marketing and comics. Um, and meanwhile, like I really do fear that there's this retrograde tendency now I see coming from DC leadership that they want to try to placate these older generation of fans. And I think that, you know, the older fans, like if you show them something good, they'll still read it too. Like the barrier to entry to new people is always higher than the barrier to of retention of old people, you know, or of people saying, you know, like old dudes saying, I've been reading Thor forever and I think the story is great. Now I know they're self-selecting for the positive ones, but it does show you that these guys are out there. Like there are people who are old time fans of, you know, big man Thor and who, because the writing on Thor starring Jane Foster as Thor is really good. They'll read it too. Um, you know, because 
I think the storytelling will get them through their bigotries. Um, and um, I really worry about this retrograde tendency. And I also, just like I said earlier, I really question to what extent any of these things are iconic to anybody other than a very small market of people. Um, yeah, in some I ways, Barbara, in some ways, Barbara, Barbara, I'm sorry. I was saying, other than ways, Batman, like, Superman, and Wonder Woman, mm-hmm. no one knows who their alter egos are. Exactly. I, I mean, I would add Barbara Gordon to that, and of course, I'm, you know, I'm sad that I want Barbara, I want Barbara Gordon to be Oracle, and I don't want Barbara, you know, and I want Cassandra King to be Batgirl. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, exactly. Like those are the ones who the people have heard about, and. I just there's so much conversation about what's iconic, what are the iconic versions of these characters, and it's always like iconic to who, you know, to who is a very small segment of the population. Um, and when you look at like there's a huge, you know, see there's this huge population right now of people who've read like Watchmen and Killing Joke, but like aren't regular comics readers, um, and who wouldn't even know where to begin. And like that's a group of people who definitely like they're not. In the, they're, in, they're in there for you to tell them this is the best graphic novel of the year. Again, you say graphic novel because they don't know what a trade paperback is. And they'll buy that. They're not there because of like a particular comic brand or anything like that. They've heard that specific things are good entertainment, quality, you know, art. with an A. And so they'll read those pieces. And that's a huge chunk of people. I mean, that's why you look at, you know, the sales for Saga really reflect that. For example, Saga is a comic that's name is out there as being a thing that's really great, interesting, intellectual, fun to read. Um, obviously, the art being something which, like, is not horribly objectifying to women, uh, even though there's definitely been problems in its portrayal of trans characters. Like, it, it you know, I mean, of, of course, Saga is a huge seller. And, um, and to that audience of people who are like, I don't, I don't know what to call them. They're not casual comics readers. They're, because they don't identify as comics readers. They're people who will buy a graphic novel if you tell them it's a damn good book. And that's a huge chunk of the population. It, um, it's funny. It's funny. I think of them in voter, voter terms. Mm, in the, yes. in the one, one to five scale that is like the old school one to five scale that I grew up on or mm-hmm. like came into politics with. That, so yeah. for those who don't know, in politics, we literally grade you as to how likely we think you are going to support our candidate. So five is someone who's definitely going to support. One is someone who's definitely in a not for some for you know if you're a Democrat and the people are Republicans they're probably going to be ones hardcore people who are voting every election are going to be fives for example uh, casual comic reader I put as like two or three yeah and I mean it's the opposite with like unions like a one is definitely voting for the union and a five is anti union but like you know yeah like those, those people are a big audience and I frequently have conversations with those people who are like hey I I really love Saga, what's the other thing I should be reading? Oh, I loved Sandman. Are there any comics that are like that? And of course, there's really nothing like Sandman. But if I know that you like Sandman, that does help me know what else to recommend to you. But there's a huge chunk of people and they want to read their comics compiled into a book. And they don't care who the fuck how Jordan is. But if there's a really awesome story that, and this really beautiful art, and it's like something that speaks to them, and you tell them that it's good, and you put it in their hands and you make that shit easy, they will read it. Yep. Yeah, they want a good story is what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. I think we all really want a good story is when it comes down to it, whoever it, it whoever it's with. Um, if it's not a good story, there's not much point to it. Yeah, yeah, completely. 
Uh, well, we're coming to the top of the hour. Um, is there anything else we'd like to discuss, or are we kind of no? I think that's it. I think we've we've destroyed any illusions of the direct market. We we're bringing <laughs> it, we're bringing the science to it, bringing that bad stuff down to the floor, um, asking the question, who the fuck cares who Hal Jordan is, and um, and uh, yeah, I think. I think I think we're good. Um, I know that uh, on Wednesday, uh, Adwell, Stephen Adwell, and I will be back talking about the final finale of season uh, six of um, Adventure Brothers. It was an amazing episode, guys. Go watch it right away. It was so cool. And there's something that you'll see in it that if you've been listening to our podcast, should stand out to you that you might not have noticed otherwise. We're here to serve. So we'll be back doing that on Wednesday. I think we'll be at 10 o'clock, but we might be at 9 o'clock. I'll check. Okay. Um, we will, of course, have that up on Blog Talk Radio for you to mm-hmm. check out relatively soon, I hope. Um, but if nothing else, we'll, of course, have it posted on uh, graphicpolicy.com, which you can catch every single day of all the latest comic news and reviews uh, to keep you updated. Uh, of course, also graphic uh, on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all the graphic policy, keeping it nice and consistent. Uh, as always, oh, yeah. the, yes, and I'm Ilana underscore Brooklyn <laughs> on Twitter. E L A N A underscore Brooklyn. You can come and yell at me about how much you love Hal Jordan. There, we always say that we're going to do that. We never do that. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so go follow Alana and um, B-H-S-C-H-E-N-K-E-R at Twitter as well. I probably should make that way simpler. Um, but yeah, you can then uh, also catch us next week for a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio. Um, for those who came in late or like to listen again or said, hell yeah, and want to share our wisdom and brilliance with other individuals, the episode will be posted on uh on iTunes, on Stitcher, and SoundCloud um, within 24 hours, and then, of course, posted on our website as well. Um, As always, thank you for listening. Much, much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky.